It's Friday, August 16th, 2019. And from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. Well, a major part of trail planning, really any kind of project, is communicating with the people who will be most affected by it. Typically, that means public meetings where residents and stakeholders can ask questions, voice concerns, and make suggestions. But attendance at these kinds of events is by definition limited to a certain population, people who have an interest in and perhaps some familiarity with the topic under discussion, people who are connected to information networks that let them know the conversations happening and why, and maybe most importantly, at a practical level, people who have the ability to attend meetings in the first place. People with work and family obligations or health problems or barriers to transportation often get left out. So do those who, for whatever reason, may not feel entirely welcome or may simply feel that this just isn't for me. These are people with valuable input to share. And when they're not part of the discussion, the best case scenario you can look forward to is you've built an amenity nobody uses, nobody wants, maybe nobody even knows about. Worst case, you've created active resentment or even opposition to the project within the community. Even worse, you might have inadvertently contributed to an economic dynamic that'll end up forcing longtime residents out of the neighborhood. Like planners everywhere, the PEC Trails team has been grappling with how best to avoid those kinds of negative outcomes by prioritizing inclusivity at every stage of trail development. That means not just aiming to build trail systems that are inclusive, but actually conducting the planning process itself in a maximally inclusive way. Well, earlier this year, with help from the William Penn Foundation and our partners in Philadelphia's Circuit Trails Coalition, PEC published a report that synthesizes everything we've learned about inclusionary trail planning. It also highlights communities in other states that have had success using this approach. The report's author, Julia Raskin, is based just across the Delaware at the New Jersey Conservation Foundation. We recently spoke about the Inclusionary Trail Planning Toolkit and about the companion series of workshops Julia has been facilitating to help municipal planners and others absorb its lessons. To set up the conversation, I asked Julia to first define some terms that you often hear in these discussions, equity, diversity, and inclusion. I'll start with inclusion just because that's it is the inclusionary trail planning toolkit for a trail that would be a trail that is created within the context of a neighborhood geography demographics and history so really looking at who lives in this community who has been displaced from this community what is the radius that we're really looking at here who can really benefit who can get to this trail and looking at that using data to really look at who is in this community and then using all the tools at your disposal to do appropriate outreach that's in the correct languages, that goes to the correct places, and really doing our due diligence to get everyone who, you know, looking at the census is represented, whether, you know, the census is the easiest, you know, most accessible way to do this, and making sure that your efforts are consistent with who is actually living there makes the process more inclusive. And also remembering that some people don't show up on the census. For example, if we're looking at the LGBTQ community, it's not, that's not in the census. So making sure that we're thinking about, you know, are we, when we introduce ourselves, are we like discussing our pronouns? Right. That's important. Thinking about everyone that you want to be at that meeting and not cutting corners. <laughs> that's, that's, that's inclusionary planning. Equity is a really, it's a much more difficult one to define. When I think about equitable planning, 
when equitable planning is achieved or when equity is achieved, really, people put in what they can and they get back what they need. So thinking about where everyone is in their, what is their position, like their demographic, income, everything. How many resources do they have? What can they actually give to this process? And how can we make this process accessible to that person in the situation that they're in? That's an equitable process, not just having a meeting in the same place all the time because that's where you've always had it, not having food or childcare or these things that actually make it possible for people to actually be able to come. And that gives them a real, hopefully a real seat at the table if we're, you know, really truly listening to what people are saying. It's just, you know, recognizing social inequities, how their roots in generations of, have created structures that are not always easy for us to see from our own personal perspective because, you know, we, we only have our own life to compare things to. It's very hard to really think about other people's situations, but you have to try. Diversity, I think that diversity is another one of those buzzwords that um, I think gets really overused because, you know, we don't want to tokenize people and say we have, you know, just a few people of color, so we're diverse. And to think about what is the culture that you're creating to not just include people of color or people who are low income or people from the LGBTQ community, but also what is the culture that you're creating to keep them there, to make them feel welcome there. I think that's a key to diversity. Tell me a little bit about you and your background. How did you become active on this issue generally? And then how did you get brought into this project? So before moving to Philadelphia um, about two years ago, I worked for the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition. And before that, I worked in parks for the New York City Parks Department. So it almost feels like a natural progression that <laughs> parks and bicycle infrastructure together equals trails, right? So <laughs> it, it felt like a, a natural progression to get to this work. I wanted to kind of go back towards more park work um, and not be solely focused on transportation, mostly because of my love for green space and cities and um, for how important it is for health of communities and, um, and just my, my own personal enjoyment, selfishly. Uh, I want more parks in my cities that I live in. I think trails are a great way to connect people to those parks and also to connect people, hopefully, to their jobs. You know, this, of course, there's a recreational aspect, but also there is a a really useful, um, potentially commuter use for these trails. So that was really what brought me into this is um, wanting, you know, caring a lot about transportation, caring a lot about Vision Zero, which is um, the commitment to have zero deaths on uh, the streets of our cities. Uh, different cities have committed to this, and um, that looks like, you know, through engineering and education and some other uh, ways of changing kind of the autocentrism of our cities. And I think trails are, is a really interesting way to also do that. I'm kind of interested in the idea of reframing the discourse around trails, which you know, traditionally is sort of, I don't know how you would describe it, sort of green granola, um, <laughs> get, getting out in nature, right? Getting the breathing fresh mm-hmm. air and so on. But as you're pointing out, a really important component of trail development is transit. Like these are practical routes that people use to get around their city. I wonder if by sort of pushing that angle and reframing the way we think about trails in those terms, does that create new opportunities to get, for example, to get trails funded? Absolutely. I think it it does. And it also, I think, 
appeals to a different audience as well. Mm -hmm. If somebody needs a free way to get to work and there happens to be a trail connecting them um, that could save them a lot of money and also improve their health. So I think for funding, it's definitely helpful. Um, funding, you know, has so many different pieces to it. I think, you know, there's the issue of maintenance that I think often comes up that stops funding from happening uh, that I've been seeing recently without a maintenance plan. Sometimes funding doesn't come through. That could be like its own podcast. <laughs> but um, in terms of inclusivity, uh, framing it not just as a recreational opportunity, because unfortunately that does have a certain connotation. And I don't know if you've heard the term mammal, but middle-aged men in Lycra um, <laughs> who are kind of bicycling through communities and not necessarily to actually be there, a part of that community, or you know maybe frequent the businesses there, but just to get some exercise and go through it. And yeah. that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, there's all sorts of uh, reasons to use a trail, but when that's the most common user that we see, um, I think that can communicate to people, well, this is not for me because I don't see myself there. And so sometimes having it be. Uh, a source of transportation can kind of lift that uh, a bit and change that perception. And then hopefully what can follow from that is also recreation and, and all sorts of other uses as well. Walk, you know, it doesn't have to be biking, of course. It could be walking, even horses, <laughs> whatever it is. You get a lot of horseback riders in uh, Philadelphia? <laughs> yeah, actually. <laughs> I, I have seen some. I live actually right on a circuit trail. I live on the Cobb Creek Circuit Trail. So looking out my window, my front window right now, I can see it. Um, and I do sometimes see uh, people on horseback out there. Cool. Yeah. So let's look at inclusionary trail planning, uh, planning generally. Uh, I know that there's a lot of specificity to the toolkit that you prepared and, and the process that came out of it. And we'll, we'll get into that. But first, can you sort of paint the picture broadly? What are the issues that you're confronting in this work what communities tend to be excluded in, in trail planning and outdoor recreation generally, and why is that? So a lot of the, I think, challenges and reasons why a toolkit like this is helpful is because a lot of our planning processes have traditionally excluded people who may not have the time and resources to attend public meetings, basically, and also may not already be in this world of urban planning, in those jobs, um, or just have that interest because of that fact, because of, of these meetings oftentimes not being accessible. So this toolkit really looks at how to make the process inclusive, the process of trail planning. So it's not necessarily about where do we put the trails so that people of all different backgrounds can use it, because that's a, a very important issue, but it's separate from this toolkit. This one really looks at how do we make the process for planning the trails inclusive? How do we get everyone to the table in a meaningful way, not just to the table to kind of check a box and say that people were there, right. but to um, make sure that their voices are really being heard and that they're being valued. But then the idea is sort of then that if the process is done right, then the outcomes are also better. You, you get the resources put where they're needed. Hopefully, yes. That is the ideal scenario and outcome. And so in terms of who is often excluded, as I mentioned, you know, people who have fewer resources, and that tends to be, you know, low-income communities, communities of color. As a woman in this work, I've also noticed it does tend to be pretty male-dominated as well. So there's a huge breadth, I think, of people who could be more included in these types of meetings. 
Tell me about the, the inclusionary trail planning toolkit. What is it? What's the goal? Who's it for? The toolkit, as I kind of mentioned earlier, it looks at um, how we can make the process of planning inclusive. So how do we, uh, how do we change the way we hold meetings? How do we change the way we do outreach for those meetings so that it reaches a wider audience and it also reaches the people who wouldn't traditionally be um, at these meetings but also could stand to benefit from this trail. You know, sometimes that community might be right next to the trail, but sometimes that community could be a mile from the trail. And um, it's important to find out how does that community a mile from the trail, maybe they might really benefit from this, whether it's transportation or health or whatever it is, uh, how do we get them to the table to not just give us their opinions and um, you know needs and desires or anything about this trail, but also just to show them that this is even happening, to raise awareness that these trails do exist. So it goes through a bit about that. It talks about, um, it uses some case studies to kind of show examples of when maybe using a toolkit like this could have been helpful and other examples of when you know people have used um, tools similar to these and it worked well. It goes through a whole array um, from, it uses actually a lot of community organizing principles around forging alliances and building a base, establishing buy-in uh, from the community and a lot of that looks like reaching out and not just, not just to say, you know, oh we made this fire in Spanish and, you know, they came or they didn't but to actually sit down with people and find out what their self-interest is in having a trail. And self-interest is an interesting concept because to some people it might sound very selfish, but oftentimes when we listen for people, when community organizers listen for people's self-interest, they oftentimes really align with other people's self-interest. They, they do have a community feel, even if it is personal. Um, there is usually a thread between people's self-interest. And once you can make, tie that thread together and create a narrative that shows people that this trail could actually serve something that they really need in their life, that's where you really get people to the table. If we, if we as trail planners assume that everyone understands the inherent value of trails, because that's how we are, you know, I love trails. I, you know, nobody really had to tell me to love trails. I just love them. Right. Um, but that's not necessarily where everyone is coming from. And I think that that's a big uh, barrier that we have to get over as planners ourselves is understanding that not everyone um, is on board with this inherent value of trails. And when you talk about the importance of buy-in, how often do you find yourself having to, I don't know, kind of like generate some of that buy-in or, or reinforce it? Obviously, uh, you can't just come into a community and say, we're doing this. They have to be on board and somebody in the community has to be committed to keeping it going, as you said. But I, do you find that some communities are like, no, we're good. We, we don't really see the value in that. And then what happens from there? Yeah, there are times when people really don't want they don't want change necessarily, right, right? right? Because there's a lot that comes with that. It's not just a trail. Um, sometimes that trail can lead to increasing property values. And in some communities, that's very welcome, right? If it's a, people want property values to increase. But there are times when that increase could lead to gentrification, could lead to displacement of people who live there. And that's actually a, a, a term that we talk about in this report. It's called green gentrification. And it's something that really trail planners, transit infrastructure, bike infrastructure, uh, anyone who's planning these things does need to think about this because that's how a lot of people perceive 
these projects as, you know, this is not necessarily for us who live here. This is for people who they want to move here. Hmm. And whether or not that perception is true, it's still oftentimes a real perception that needs to be addressed and cannot just be ignored. And the more it is ignored, the less trusted planners are going to be. And so we have to deal with these things head on. And we have to think about how do trails, how can trails or parks or bike lanes for that matter, any of this type of infrastructure, how can it actually bring the community together and make it stronger and more resilient in the face of a changing economy? Right. And not just, you know, this is something that's happening to you. As planners, we have to look outside of what our job description is. My job description is build a trail. But when I go to a community, someone says, well, I can't even afford, you know, housing. I can't afford to stay in this neighborhood because the rents are going up. And you want to put this trail in, and all that's going to do is contribute to these rents going up. So why would I support this? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times it's, it's very easy for a planner to say, well, that's not my job to answer that question or to help you with that or anything. And I think we need to challenge ourselves to actually look and see how can we actually support this community with the concerns that they do have to make a trail a really successful project that has community buy-in. So, for example, do you know someone who works in an affordable housing nonprofit or works in housing in the city, and can you make a connection? Um, can you sit down to coffee and, you know, kind of actually facilitate that relationship um, can you go to a community meeting that is about housing and see where a trail might actually fit in? Can you just go to a meeting and not have an agenda about your trail and just be there to listen? These are great ways of, of building trust, but not just building trust with the community, also actually actively doing something and trying to make connections so that people in that neighborhood feel like and know that you are on their side and you do want them to be able to stay in their neighborhood and you're willing to make those connections and go that extra step. Looking at the example that you're just citing, I'm wondering what are the areas of overlap and common interest between the trail and green space uh, development community and the the housing uh, community, people that are organizing around housing issues? Where do those come together? How do you forge those alliances? Well, sometimes, you know, that alliance can be with the developer. So if a developer is coming in and making, buying up a bunch of land and making a huge housing development, making sure that part of their maybe community benefits agreement is that they build a trail on that land and that they make it, you know, publicly accessible. So that's one way of just kind of getting trails into the plan. But in terms of affordable housing, I would say that's, that's a very difficult, that's something that I think we're still trying to kind of figure out, where is this connection? For health-wise and transportation-wise, it does save people a lot of money. And so it is an affordability, a tool for affordability. But as long as we kind of ignore the fact that it also raises property values, I don't think we're going to get very far in those conversations. We have to acknowledge it and talk to those nonprofits that are doing affordable housing and figure out, like, how do we work together to make this a joint kind of effort to making this community a healthy, livable place and not just not looking at it as like a city wide issue, but as a very local neighborhood issue. How do we make it so that people can actually stay? And that could also look like 
if, if you're a trail advocate and you have office space and maybe the local affordable housing nonprofit needs a space to host workshops on home ownership or on financing. Little things like that, and they're actually not little. <laughs> they're really important. And just showing that like you're in it for the community. You're not just in it because it's your job. You're not just in it you know, as something to put on your resume that you built this cool trail, but that you really care about how this trail is going to impact the community. What to you is the value of initiative like the Circuit Trails Coalition for propagating this way of doing things and getting the kinds of outcomes that we want? Well, I think that it's only the beginning. It's not the answer at all. <laughs> it's, it's really just one step towards probably a, a lifetime or more of doing this kind of work. This is not something that's going to be fixed with three workshops and a toolkit. Of course, the toolkit, I think, should be implemented and workshops should continue. But more than that, I think people really need to do their own personal work and read up on the topic and think about ways that they can be allies, ways that they can fight for racial justice. We need those allies. We need people in those spaces to do that work because the onus should not be on people who are already marginalized to do that work um, of advocating for themselves all the time. It's exhausting, it's, and it's not fair. And so creating these spaces is just the beginning, just the start of getting people to hopefully do some of that work and continue doing that work and basically never stop. I know I'm never going to stop doing this work. I, if I ever wake up and think that I get it and I'm quote-unquote woke, then I'm missing the point. That's not, you're not just woke and then you're fine, which I think a lot of people have this misconception that that's not how it works. We're always learning. We have to stay humble in this work. And I'm really hoping that these types of workshops only further that. Well, Julio, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for uh, telling me about your work. Absolutely. Thank you, Josh. That's Julio Raskin, Outreach Manager for Camden Parks and Greenways with the New Jersey Conservation Foundation. She's the author of PAC's Inclusionary Trail Planning Toolkit, a guide to planning and programming equitable trail networks. You can download that report as a PDF from the PEC website, free of course. Just look for the link in this episode's show notes. And that's it for another edition of Pennsylvania Legacies. Glad to have had you with us. If you haven't already done so, please take a moment to subscribe to this show in whatever podcast app you use, whether that's the Apple Podcasts app that comes with the, your iPhone, if that's your device of choice. It's a easy to subscribe, and likewise in any number of other apps that are available out there. Pennsylvania Legacies, of course, is also available to stream via our website in the audio room section at peckpa.org slash audio. While you're on the website, you can get caught up on some of Peck's program work in areas including trails and recreation, as well as watersheds, energy and climate, communities and landscapes, and so much more. It's at peckpa.org. Our Twitter is at P-E-C-P-A, and you can find us on Facebook, too. For the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson, and as always, thanks for listening. (laughs) 